This podcast is being brought to you in part by the veteran-founded Hero Soap Company, located in Phoenix, Arizona. In today's environment, we must be aware of the products we apply to our skin. As a two-time cancer survivor, I cannot afford to take chances, and I use these products myself. The soaps will leave you feeling clean and refreshed. All the products made by the Hero Soap Company are made in the United States with the highest quality ingredients sourced from companies in the United States whenever possible. The products are made in small batches to ensure high quality and contain premium essential oils and fragrance. All Hero Soaps are created without synthetic colorants, parabens, and sulfates that are irritating to the eyes, skin, mouth, and lungs, and are cruelty-free, meaning these products are not tested on animals. Each 5-ounce bar of soap is handmade in Phoenix, Arizona, and the body wash is available in 8 ounces with such refreshing scents as the woods, tea tree, lavender, the fields, bourbon, lime, the pines, and arctic. You will absolutely love this soap. Please also check out their gear for sale. All the products are reasonably priced. Being veteran-founded, the company understands the dedication and sacrifice that each family makes to serve their country. A portion of sales is donated back to charities that are focused on helping veterans and our first responders. Over 1,200 bars have been sent to our deployed troops. Please check out their website, HeroSoapCompany.com, for pricing and a detailed description of all the products. When ordering, use the code RAP for a 10% discount. The company information will be listed in the podcast notes and featured on the podcast website, Facebook group, page, and the podcast Instagram. Welcome, everyone, to It's a Wrap with Rap. I'm your host, Ron Rappaport. Before we start, I would like to thank all our listeners, supporters, and sponsors that have helped to make this podcast so successful. The podcast is being heard in all 50 states, all provinces of Canada, and over 60 countries around the world. The podcast has been ranked by Feedspot as one of the top 35 overcoming adversity podcasts on the web from thousands in that category and is ranked by traffic social media followers and content freshness please visit the podcast website it's a wrap with rap.com for all the episodes and other information regarding the podcast and to order logo merchandise of which a portion of sales is donated to various charities and to sign up for our newsletter by entering your email address under the contact tab This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire, motivate, and educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is Leslie Hope Holthoff. Leslie has survived teen pregnancy in 1994, a divorce in 2005, and her father's passing away in 2017. These experiences brought change she learned to embrace, including co-parenting in and out of the 50-50 joint shared custody arena for 30 years. Her teen pregnancy and subsequent parenting took her through meditation, parenting classes, multiple court cases, child support, and many different types 
of custody arrangements. Her divorce was a life-changing occurrence that took her from the life she thought she always wanted to a completely new life she had never even dared to dream of. Her experiences in turning a life destined for failure into a life of abundance inspired her to help others and create the Hope to Happiness Method, a program that focuses on loving the person you are after a divorce. Leslie has authored the book, Not Mary, Not Roll, the survival story of a reluctant teen mom, who, which is a stereotype shattering story that explores the nuances of social mores, family upbringing, and religion that can become unwitting contributors to teen pregnancy. Leslie holds a BS in psychology from Old Dominion University and a master's of public administration from Walden University. She is also a CDC certified divorce coach, CDC transition and recovery coach, wife and mother of two adult sons. Welcome, Leslie, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, so glad to have you and a lot of accolades there. So we're, we're honored to have you. Leslie, Thank you. tell us about your early years growing up. Sure. Well, I was uh, really lucky. I had incredible parents. I grew up in just like exact the white picket fence, like you imagine back in the early 80s. Uh, great parents. Uh, we moved to a, a different small town when I was about 10 years old. I have two little sisters. My middle sister is special needs. So I was the oldest of three girls. And then as you you said in that introduction there, um, my world was shattered when I found out that I was pregnant at 15. So I had to overcome that. And as a family, we had to overcome that and uh, still are actually, I think, still working to overcome that kind of uh, trauma when you're young like that. Leslie, what was life uh, like after you found out you were pregnant at age 15 and tell us uh, about your support system then how did your your parents react and obviously uh, it changed their lives uh, can you tell us about that it did it, it changed all of our lives I um I didn't really understand how I had gotten into the situation that I was in um, we came from a we were a religious family in the sense that we went to church every Sunday but um you know, not so religious that my parents didn't drink or have a social life or that kind of thing. Um, but it still came as much as a shock to them as it did to me. Um, and they didn't know, you know, how to handle it. Uh, my my dad was brought up Catholic um, and my mom was Baptist and they had already started trying to sort of meet in the middle and were really struggling with that already. And so anyways, they didn't really know how to. And I think they went through the normal, um, you know, there was anger, there was a lot of tears. So I don't think they knew how to handle it at first, but what they decided to do was just say, we don't know what to do, but we love you and we're gonna figure this out. We, we tried to kind of talk about options some, but I felt at the time like this was happening to me for a reason and that I needed to in a way, take well to take responsibility for my actions, and so I had basically already decided that I was going to have the baby, and they respected that. And so it was very interesting. You know, I had two little sisters, so when I had my son at sixteen, you know, my little sister was only ten, so there's only ten years in between them. So there was a baby in the house. My mom had just gotten through that phase not much long before that with me and my sisters, so it was a huge adjustment. I did have a son, so there was also having a boy around. Um, but they 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 did the best they could. You know, it was ups and downs for for all of us. But um, in the end, they they did decide to support me as much as possible. And that relationship took a long time to build back. But I'm happy to say that eventually, you know, it did. And they were able to to watch me. I think their their biggest concern was me. Um, and they were afraid that I wasn't. I've always been a bit of a dreamer. 
Uh, and they were really afraid that this was going to sort of stifle my dreams and turn me into somebody else. And they made me promise them early on that I would still really work hard and try to accomplish everything I wanted to then, which at the time I wanted to be an architect. So I made them that promise and they helped me. That dream changed over time, but they, um, they never stopped supporting me. I was really lucky in that regard. How did your sister react to being uh, like an instant aunt? <laughs> well, you know, it was, you know, my youngest sister was 10, but my middle sister who was special needs, you know, was only 13 or 14. And um, that was a hard conversation to have for both of them because they not only had to say there's this other person who's going to be in our house. They had to sort of explain how someone who wasn't married had a baby, how someone who was their sister, you know, it was, it was an enormous conversation and an evolving one, you know, as they got older, they, I believe, found out more and more information, but, um, you know, she was young. They were both young. They thought it was cool to be an aunt. Hopefully they still do, but they, they handled it well too. But there was a lot that, uh, my youngest sister, I think carried with having been through that at such a young age and watching what I went through. I think that that took her some time to deal with as well. What, what, in your opinion, could be the contributing factors that can lead to teen pregnancy? And uh, what could be some of the things that could prevent it that we are not doing? And have things changed over the years, in your opinion? My absolute favorite question. Thank you. Um, my number one is sex education. I was not taught a lot about what sex was, right? I wasn't allowed to watch PG-13 movies until I was 13. It was, I lived in a world that was supposed to be completely void of sex. And we did learn, we had sex education in school, but that mostly handled uh, body parts and things like that. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I, I, sex education is absolutely imperative and pretending like sex doesn't exist doesn't stop it. Teenagers still have hormones. They still have curiosities, whether they know what they're doing or not, they tend to figure it out. So I really, I'm a huge component for sex education, and I think it would- Let me take a very brief moment out to alert all our patients and caregivers out there that Rare Patient Voice, a supporter of the podcast, is paying for your input. Patients 16 years and older and caregivers, family, and friends of any disability, disorder, syndrome, illness, or condition have the opportunity to express their opinions through surveys and interviews to improve medical products and services. Who knows your journey better than you? Rare Patient Voice puts you in touch with researchers who are developing products and services that can help you and others with your condition. These researchers need input of patients to develop products and services that have significant impact on patients' lives. Over the past nine years, Rare Patient Voice has paid patients over $10 million. When you join Rare Patient Voice, you may be invited to participate in interviews, surveys, or online communities where you will share your insights. Rare Patient Voice usually has hundreds of studies running at any time, so there are many opportunities to participate. You will earn $120 per hour for participating in these studies. By making your voice heard, you are a catalyst for change. Rest assured, your input will be used to help other patients like you. There is no cost at all to you, the participant. You can get more information and sign up by clicking the link in the sponsor's notes. It really helped me. I also, you know, once I found myself in that situation, I also had no idea what the options were. I didn't, because of my religious background, I had always been taught that abortion was wrong. I had no idea of really even knowing what abortion was. I knew the word. I knew the sort of general idea but I really lacked a lot of information. I didn't know anything about adoption. I didn't know anything about childbirth. Even what I did know about childbirth, I was obviously completely unprepared for the responsibility of parenting that came 
six weeks after I turned 16 years old, I had just been able to drive a car, you know, and I barely could handle that responsibility. Um, So my answer is sex education all of the way. One thing that even when we do talk about sex education, we don't talk a lot about teach these kids what leads up to sex. So that's always what I say. Like, I just felt like sex was going to be this thing that A, wasn't going to be proposed or tried until I got married and B, that I would know that's what was happening. And the truth is that uh, maybe I was young and naive, but a lot of girls are. I didn't know that's what was happening. I didn't know that's where what the end game was. I didn't realize that's what uh, the boys were trying so hard for necessarily. And, I, you know, it's embarrassing to say that now, but the truth is when you're a kid and you've grown up in a world where sex doesn't exist, it's sort of unbelievable when the parts of it start to show up in your life. When you hear about girls in high school or you hear about your friends having sex, you're sort of like... Or you hear about your parent, you're like, whoa, you're telling me my parents had sex. I mean, you know, all that information as a kid takes a while to sink in. And, you know, just the more you talk to your kids and the more open you are, the better off I believe they are. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of families that probably don't don't discuss it. That's just not the way to go. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of it's a cultural thing, too, is what I'm learning is it d- depends on the culture. But, um, you know, like I said, I know in my family, it was never spoken of. Um, it was something that married people did. And if you weren't married, you didn't need to talk about it or know about it. Um, and, and I hate that. I'm, I'm sure now my parents do, too. But they certainly thought they were doing the right thing at the time. Do you think things have changed over the years? Not enough. Not enough. I know where I live in southeastern Virginia, there's still, um, you know, there's still schools who fight teaching sex education. And and I know that's not a Virginia thing that's across the country. Um, No, it hasn't changed enough. One thing that has, of course, is that now there's the Internet. You know, I was sneaking into the the library and reading encyclopedias to understand what was happening with my body. Um, And now, obviously, I would have that at my fingertips. But I, I worry now that the information they're getting is still not well, I know it's not, you know, that's not how you want your kids to learn. Certainly not from on the internet. So you were a reluctant mom in the beginning. Has that changed over the years? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I got married in my early 20s and I had a second son who I wanted very, very badly and, and tried for. And I was happy to be a mom at that point, but I have never been comfortable with mom being my first like description. (laughs) You know, when people talk about who they are as a person, mom is usually the last thing that comes out of my mouth. Like, oh, I'm a this and a that and whatever. And then I'm like, oh, and I also have two kids. And I don't know if that is still part of just having been started that journey so early, but it's, it's just not something that I have ever related to easily. Let's put it that way. So when when did you go public with your story and what was the uh the catalyst or the impetus that that made you do it and make yourself courageously and, and bravely vulnerable yeah it was really difficult it was a hard decision i had wanted to write about my journey for years i mean decades truly um and i really struggled with what the impact would be on my two kids to know the truth about, you know, how my older one came about. And then my younger one, obviously I divorced his father and and I knew that that would be an emotional thing for him. And so honestly, it was my kids getting old enough that I felt like they could handle the truth and that I could sit down and talk to them about what was going to be in the book before the book came out and feel comfortable with them being able to handle it. Uh, That was really the catalyst. So I had been patiently writing for (laughs) years um, before I finally said, you know what, they're old enough. I, it was just time. And I had multiple versions of this book 
Um, and so I was, I was at a point where I felt like I could really condense it and take out some of the things that just weren't needed and, and really make it a little bit more cohesive um, and help it make a little bit more sense. And the timing felt right, but it was, it was terrifying. If I'm being totally honest, I loved writing it. It was very therapeutic, but when the time came for it to go public, I spent some time in, in full, in full terror. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So it was something you really wanted to do for a while. You were just it, I just always felt compelled to share my story. And yeah, I shared it throughout the years. You know, when you go through something like that, um being pregnant in high school, you know, everybody kind of knew about it, especially in my small town. And for years after, when people found themselves in that situation, they would reach out to me as just someone they knew who had been there. So I had kind of um gotten used to sharing my story privately. Um, but I just somewhere along the line I said, you know what, I, I know there's people going through this. And at this point, even parents who are going through this with their with their own teenagers, where I felt like I could add some value. And that was, I know that when I made the decision to have this baby at 16, my, my parents had big hopes and dreams, but I don't think they ever really believed that I would be able to achieve them at that point. And, and, and I certainly, I'm not sure that I did either, um, but I was able to fight tooth and nail and, and, and get my degrees and get good jobs and, and turn everything around. And I know that that made them really proud. And I would like to believe that there's somebody out there, you know, struggling or parents out there who think their kids are sort of signing a life sentence when they have kids early. And, and there just is so many things we can do as a society to help them succeed. And it is possible. Does it take a little longer? Yes. Is it, is it harder? Absolutely. Yeah. But still totally doable. And, and I think maybe even more rewarding. That's awesome. You know, that you can say that and, you know, you did it and there's others out there that can do it. Now, for those out there listening that may be going through this scenario or know someone who is and is conflicted, what advice do you have for them to get through that journey the best way possible? Um, find someone that you can talk to, someone you can trust. Um, I struggled. I was lucky to have a couple of uh, my friends who had moms that I was comfortable enough to talk to because I, I was scared to tell my parents at first, but um, talk to an adult, talk to somebody else who's been there or who's at least had children. That was really helpful for me. My friends just couldn't, you know, I had great friends, but they weren't able to really understand what I was going through. Sure. Um, and, and just weigh your options. You know, there is, there's no right answer that's right for everyone across the board and, and just try to learn everything you can about what's going on with yourself how you got here and where you want to be and how you can really just make sense of it all and learn from whatever decision you make and whatever the journey takes you to continue to learn from it and use it to make yourself better. So Leslie, you're a CDC certified divorce coach and tra and transition and recovery coach, as well as a co-parenting coach. So right. let's, dis let's discuss co-parenting. Uh, please tell us what you do as a co-parenting coach and your personal experience with co-parenting. And how did you get into that line of work? Sure. So when I obviously had my, my parents were married for 45 years before my uh, dad passed away in 17. So when I gave birth to my first child, I didn't even know the term co-parenting, but I suddenly was with, had a baby with this person that I didn't live with, obviously. And so we started figuring it out, sharing custody with this baby. And he was young too. So a lot of the times it was his, his mom or his family. And we both had a lot of help, but we were sort of navigating all of that. And later on, we tried, we got engaged. We tried to make it work. We lived together. We didn't get married. It was kind of all over the place. 
And then, of course, I did get married while still co-parenting with my first sons. The podcast welcomes The Edge Coffee Company as a supporter and sponsor. Mike, the founder of Edge, wanted to build a different kind of coffee company, one that makes a high-quality product that is truly good for customers and makes the world a better place through the production of coffee and also be an engine for good by directing at least 10% of the profits to a sustainable social mission. As everyone knows, coffee can be a health beverage, but it doesn't have to cause jitteriness and anxiety or digestive issues. Coffee is full of antioxidants, vitamins, minerals, and polyphenols that your body needs to function optimally. Yet, pesticide residue and mold toxins can negatively impact your health. Commercial coffee production can be a nasty business where the environment and people are exploited. Typical commercial-grade coffee is processed with huge amounts of chemical fertilizer and synthetic pesticides. Often it contains trace amounts of mycotoxins. Any wonder people feel anxious, jittery, and have digestive issues from drinking it. That is why Edge Coffee is always certified organic and tested in a third-party lab and found to have no detectable traces of mycotoxins. Edge uses only specialty-grade beans. Specialty-grade is a technical term that applies to about the top 3% of coffee beans produced worldwide. Not only do these beans taste the best, they are also the healthiest. 10% of Edge Coffee's profits fund interest-free loans to entrepreneurs in Peru. Edge is so sure that you will love the taste of their premium clean coffee, free from mycotoxins and pesticide residue, that they offer a generous refund policy. Please click the link in the podcast notes to order and get detailed information on Edge Coffee. Father and I got married, um, had a second child, and then unfortunately I got divorced about two years later. So at 26 years old, I had two kids by two different dads and two different co-parenting schedules. So we tried everything under the sun and and both <laughs> with both of them. And I was able finally to get them on the same schedule. We did a week I'd never heard of. All of my friends who grew up with their parents divorced did every other weekend, you know, maybe a holiday here or there. So I was really trying something that at the time I thought was brand new information. Um, but we, we settled on 50-50. And I benefited so much from that custody arrangement. It allowed me to get my college degrees. It allowed me to be a better employee. And it helped me, I believe, be a better mom. And so I'm a real advocate for joint shared custody. I'm actually doing research for my PhD right now, and I'm actually studying joint shared custody, and I'm interviewing um, kids who grew up in 50-50, and I'm, I'm getting their insight and learning about their experiences so I can continue to share information about that. But in and out of all of that, I learned a lot about co-parenting. And so when I became a divorce coach, I realized that a huge component is, is getting through the divorce is one thing, but knowing how to co-parent your child constantly changes. Co-parenting a five-year-old is totally different than co-parenting a 15-year-old. And it also matters if you're the mom or the dad, if you have a son or a daughter or both. And so I realized there was really this missing piece um, where people were struggling to connect with their kids after divorce. And I just really saw an opportunity where I could try to bring some insight to the table. So that's what I do. And, and a lot of the co-parenting coaching is sometimes helping you communicate better with your ex when the only thing you're talking about is co-parenting. You know, the divorce has gone through, but for whatever reason, you're you're reaching these co-parenting hiccups, which usually happen when there's a big change in a medical situation, or perhaps when one of them starts driving. That's usually also another hiccup. So in moments like that, you can work with um, a co-parenting coach, and they help you sort of navigate that a little easier. Yeah, you're you're kind of leading into my next question. Uh, what are some of the obstacles or struggles 
that you observe that occurs during co-parenting? You know, the, the biggest fight, it seems like, honestly, it's always about money, um, which sometimes is figured out in the divorce through child support and whatnot. Um, but even when it is figured out, that, that carries a lot of weight. The second biggest challenge is when one or both of the parents move on. So when there's a new step-parent, or sometimes just when there's a new boyfriend or girl, you know, a new relationship, um, you can just see, I've seen parents who had incredible co-parenting plans and they've been great co-parents. And then a new party enters as a significant other and it wrecks havoc on the already established co-parenting arrangements. And, and I, I, you know, I've worked with a lot of dads who really struggle watching this happen. And, and it does seem to happen a lot it, um, with moms you know, who who get in these relationships with a new significant other and um, want to make changes. So it, it's, it's hard. And, you know, every single relationship and therefore co-parenting relationship is different. But I try really hard to work with my clients and we try to really focus on what's working and work on changing what isn't uh, in a way that is respectful to both parties. Yeah. So you've talked about respecting the other's house could you uh, please talk about that? Sure. It, in all co-parenting, but um, especially in joint shared custody, you know, it's always hard to say, I'm going to take my child, you know, like my favorite thing in the whole world, and I'm going to hand him or her to you and just do what you want. Right. But I think it's really important to expect the other per- or respect the other person's house. And case in point is for a while at the beginning of my co-parenting journey, when we were doing every other week, my ex-husband would constantly call and he would want to talk to my son before bed or when he got home from school. And I finally said, you know what, this is not working for me. When you're calling, you don't know if I'm in the middle of having dinner with the kids. You know, if he did have a bad day at school and he got a bad grade, well, I'm already reprimanding him for that. He doesn't need another phone call to come in and hear it again. Um, it's disruptive, you know, and, and but the same, you know, where I might think bedtime is eight o'clock. My ex-husband might have thought it was 830 or 845. Even though I hated that, I had to learn to say, it's not the end of the world. I have to respect, you know, his time. And if that's the way he wants to use it, you know, I have to let some things go. Um, so it's really important to respect the privacy, the time at the other parent's house. And ultimately, so many of these small little things like 15 minutes of bedtime, they really don't matter. You know, you have to really learn to pick your battles. Um, and some things just aren't worth the fight. Right. That's what I was going to say. You really have to pick your battles. What advice or tips do you have for those out there starting the divorce process and trying to decide about co-parenting? Well, I might sound a little biased, but I think the first step is to get a coach and or if there's some other professional out there who's who knows how to help you get started. You know, divorce is really complicated. Obviously, the best case scenario is that you would be able to do it as friends and and not get in fights, but there are lawyers and mediators and financial people. And, and more often than not, you need a whole team of people. Um, and I think it's really important to learn how to communicate. That's something that you, you're not used to. You're used to being able to say whatever you want to your spouse. And now they're your ex-spouse and you're in the middle of a divorce and you have to be very careful what you say and how you talk to each other. Um, and so it's really helpful to find somebody who can help you communicate like that. Slow down. Um, a lot of times when people are ready to get divorced, they're ready to be divorced yesterday. Um, and it took you a long time to get to that point and divorce is a slow process. Um, so try to, I know it's exciting and you want to kick off your new life, but you have to sort of take things slow. You have to think before you act, you have to make decisions that are going to have 
a lasting impact. So just think really hard about the decisions you're making for your kids. You know, if your spouse cheated and you're angry, that is not a reason to keep them from your kids. Um, you know, you have to keep, you have to think about the long-term effects that that type of thing can have on your child. You have to not allow your emotions to make these decisions. So it's just, it's a lot to think about. And I highly suggest finding a professional to talk to. Have you ever actually worked or been asked to be like a mediator between two parties? I've been asked before, but I, I work closely with a local mediator and I would, I've worked with him in mediations, but I don't do that myself, but I have been asked. Okay, I guess you wouldn't probably because one parent would be the Correct. one hiring you, right? Yeah, I usually work with just one of the parents. So you really ne- do you talk okay. to the other parent? I do not. All? You do not. Okay, so it's strictly it's strictly mm-hmm. one. Okay. Yeah, I am a coach for just the one party. Gotcha, gotcha. What advice for those who have been dealing with it and are still struggling? In other words, there's. They're dealing with co-parenting, but they're still struggling. Uh, what advice do you have for those people? Oh, find a community. You know, there's, um, you know, a million different Facebook groups and, and online places to go where you can find other parents who are trying to work in the same co-parenting realm and what they're struggling with. And um, just try to find some connections so you don't feel quite so alone because, you know, you, you might have lots of friends, but, you know, they're probably not in the same place as you are going through a divorce or, or very shortly thereafter, and your co-parenting situation may be different. And I think just finding your community can make a huge impact um, on having, on being able to make wise choices and having a group to reach out to if you have questions, you know, in addition to, of course, therapists and, and like I said, coaches and things of that nature, um, just having a great community. Now, is there anything you suggest that is specific to the children uh, that the co-parents should be doing to ensure their you know, emotional safety and, and, and well-being. Yeah, I I always say it's what not to do. Um, and that is discuss your relationship, your finances, or the other parent with your child. And then I always try to say, I always tried to compliment my ex, no matter how difficult that was. You know, that's so great that your dad took you to the aquarium this weekend. I'm glad you guys had a good time. You know, just really encourage the relationship with them and make sure the child doesn't feel, even if I was sad that he was gone, or even if I, you know, was upset that I wasn't seeing him, I never wanted my child to think that. I wanted my child to think that I was super happy for him and very happy that they got to go do things together and to never be concerned about my emotions and just let the child be the child and allow them to concentrate on figuring themselves out and how they're going to handle uh, their new arrangement without having to carry the weight of either of the parents. I would imagine if one parent is really negative on the other, that's going to probably do a lot of harm to that child, don't you think? It does, yes. Yeah. Have you seen have you seen that happen? I have, um, unfortunately. You know, there's there's some studies out though that say that when you talk bad about the other parent, you know, the child internalizes that because they view the parent, the other parent as a part of them. So I try to tell them, remembering what you're saying to an, about the other parent to the child is the same thing as saying it to them about them. So if you wouldn't do that, don't say it about the other parent. Right, right. So, Leslie, tell us a little bit about your book, uh, Not Mary, Not Roll. And, yes. okay, I'm going to guess Mary being Mary uh, from the Bible. Correct. <laughs> and and, and Roe being the, yes. the abortion. 
Yes. So I picked not marry, not row, because I think when you think of unwed mothers, those are the first two that come to mind. A lot of really famous or mentor unwed mothers, right? So I wrote not marry, not row, because, you know, most women fall in between those two, right? We're, we're, right. we're not the Virgin Mary, but we're also not Jane Roe. Um, and so it's just all the women in the middle who seem to get forgotten so frequently. Um, and I just really wanted to write a book that said, you know, we're all different, but we all have this thing in common um, and it can be overcome and that there is definitely a better life on the other side. And it's about dealing with unforeseen trauma, unforeseen circumstances and like I said before, just finding a way to use them as lessons. One thing that's funny is I am incredibly good at time management. And I realized one day that is because having two kids on different schedules and, and going to school and getting them to school and, and going to college and having a job. One day I was like, I'm incredibly good at time management because I had to be right. right. So you had no thing. choice. <laughs> I had no choice. <laughs> And I'm like, that is a, a lesson that I learned and a benefit that I got, even though, man, I went about that in the hardest way possible, right? But, but you know, that is just something I'm really good at. And it is a, a benefit that I, a good thing I was able to, to, to take from something bad. But there are many lessons like that. And there are a lot of things that I am good at because I had to, I'm, I've been, I'm 45 years old and I've been a parent for almost 30 years. You know, there's not a lot of 45 year olds who can say that. Um, no, no, not at all. You know, I've been co parenting. A lot of 45 year olds are first starting out. <laughs> oh, I know. I have people all the time and they're like, I can't believe you're old enough to have. I'm like, I shouldn't be old enough to have. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have 30 years of co parenting experience any other way. So, you know, that's again, it's a, it's a thin win, but it's still a win. And it certainly helps me in my career now. And obviously is what drawn me to, drew it to me anyhow originally yeah um it's like i always say don't ask uh for me you know why why is this happening to me always ask why is this happening for me yes yeah exactly and i i i wish i knew why i took that i mean i really had that attitude almost right from the beginning and i don't know what made me see it that way um, but I just decided early on that i was going to figure out that this was what i needed to do and i was going to figure out how to to, to do better and how to turn it into a good thing. And right. uh, that was not always easy. No, um, you were positive. I was. And positive I, mindset. Yep. And I guess a lot of that came from my parents and, you know, they just always supported me and they always thought I was a little crazy, a little bit of a dreamer. <laughs> you know? yeah. They were like, you go for it, you know? And, um, right. and they, they always did. And that was really wonderful. And I hope that other parents can hear that about their kids and, it's never, never give up on them. Right. Yeah. That's one of the, one of the themes on this podcast is never give up. Where, where can this, where can uh, not marry, not roll the book, where can it be obtained? Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, also on my website, which is lesliehopeandassociates.com. Um, you can find the link on there, but it, it's, it's most anywhere online that you would buy a book. We're going to put that in the podcast notes. Do you have any future plans for a new book or, or you have any new projects going on? What, what's going well, on? Well, I've promised myself I'm going to stop writing books until I'm done with my PhD, but I'm hoping that that will be in about the next six weeks. Um, oh, great, I absolutely great. have several more books that I want to write. I'm, I'm not sure which one will, will lead the pack when we get ready, um, but I have at least three that I've already started outlines for and that I'm working on slowly. Um, but I, I intend to continue writing 
hopefully forever. It's my absolute favorite thing to do. We'll have to have you back when those books come out. I would love that. That would be awesome. Wonderful. Awesome. Now, how can people contact you, Leslie? Um, the best way is is my website. There's a contact form on there, um, lesliehopeandassociates.com. Um, and you can, I think there's even like a little chat button on there, but we also have Instagram and Facebook and all the regular social media. Feel free to instant message me on any of those. Um, I'd love to hear feedback. If you have any questions about the book or coaching or divorce or, or teen pregnancy, any of it in general, I, I'm happy to answer questions. Okay. Now I also have a website, uh, com. It's the same. It goes to the same place. It goes to the same place. Okay. And the other yeah. one is Leslie Hope. Is it A-N-D associates.com? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. I want to thank you so much, Leslie, for being on the podcast and, and shining a spotlight on this, on this subject matter that really doesn't seem to get the attention it deserves. Uh, all the best to you uh, with your work going forward and your uh, work and ability helping others. It's great that you're doing that. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Yes, I appreciate you having me. Uh, oh. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, comments and suggestions for the podcast, you can email me at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. Our website is it's a wrap with rap.com. All the episodes are on there, of course. Facebook group is it's a wrap with rap. Uh, our Instagram, it's a wrap with rap podcast. And Twitter is at rapper, W R A P P E R 130. All the episodes are on YouTube. It's a wrap with rap, the podcast uncut. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there. And for now, it's a wrap.